Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you? Welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to the podcast. This is Molly. I'm Kristen. Kristen, you know, and I'm sure many of our listeners know, I write about health issues for How Stuff Works. And that means that there is one book that is on my mind a lot lately. Yeah. It's coming out in 2013. So I've got a little bit of time to wait, but right now we're in the three-year comment period for it. Mm -hmm. So things are pretty exciting. I think you're talking about the DSM-5? Yes. The Psychiatric Bible, as it's often called. It stands for Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders. Mm -hmm. Right now we have the DSM-4, and it's going to be updated and better than ever. Um, But it it's... In the process of revising it, people are having all sorts of questions as to, you know, what's going to be included? How are we going to fine tune this thing? Because basically, like I said, it's the Bible. If it's not in the DSM, might as well just not even exist. Yeah. And uh, one big thing that is uh, that has gotten some headlines, one addition, I should say, to the DSM-5, is that binge eating disorder is going to be classified along with uh, other eating disorders such as uh, bulimia, anorexia, and also eating disorders not otherwise classified, a.k.a. Ednos. Right. Those are the big three now, are anorexia, bulimia, and Ednos, and binge eating is under Ednos. Yeah. Um, but the problem is, is that Ednos is pretty big umbrella. Yes. So that's what they're hoping, that by bringing binge eating out, it'll shine some more light and help more people get help with the problem of binge eating. And we thought that this would be a good opportunity. We haven't covered eating disorders before, mm-hmm. and we thought that this would be a good opportunity to not just talk about, you know, what is an eating disorder. I think a lot of people are pretty aware of issues like anorexia and bulimia, you know, where people will generally like starve themselves. Uh, they will go through cycles of binging and purging. But uh, we thought that it would be a good opportunity to really focus on these issues of the, the Ednos, the kind of not otherwise classified um, eating disorders, because Ednos is the most commonly diagnosed eating disorder in the United States, because a lot of times it uh, takes a lot of different criteria to be considered clinically anorexic mm-hmm. or bulimic. And that's been a big problem for, for a lot of people who are trying to seek help. Um, so without further ado... What constitutes an eating disorder? Yes. Let's talk about, let's talk about eating disorders. And, uh, let's go to just basic definitions of, um, the anorexia, bulimia, and Ednos because I was actually surprised for a couple of these things. I think that we, um, might not entirely understand what, uh, each of these disorders involves. Okay. So this is coming from the National Institute of Mental Health. And, uh, it defines anorexia Nervosa, as uh, it's characterized by emaciation, a relentless pursuit of thinness and unwillingness to maintain a normal or healthy weight, a distortion of body image, an intense fear of gaining weight, a lack of menstruation among girls and women, and extremely disturbed eating behavior. Some people with anorexia lose weight by dieting and exercising excessively. Others lose weight by self-induced vomiting or misusing laxatives, diuretics, or enemas. And I didn't realize, I think a lot of times people will associate the vomiting with um, bulimia, mm-hmm. but um, it's more the difference between anorexia and bulimia is really just your food intake. A lot of times, anorexics eat very, very little food, whereas with bulimia, 
Um, it is characterized by recurrent and frequent episodes of eating unusually large amounts of food, i.e. binge eating, and feeling lack of control over the eating. And then it is followed by something to compensate for the binge, such as purging, fasting, and or excessive exercise. And one thing with, uh, one big difference between anorexics and bulimics is that uh, a lot of times you can tell when someone is struggling with anorexia, they will be extremely thin. But um, it's not that uncommon for bulimics to be within um, a normal, healthy weight range. Mm-hmm. Not to say that the behavior is healthy, but just that their weight is, is at a normal spot. Now, I think that just in reading those two very precise definitions of the conditions that are recognized by the current dsm 4 you already see how hard it can be to kind of separate out all the different issues and tell if you really do have a disordered eating pattern. Because you mentioned binge eating, um, which is now going to be, you know, possibly its own disorder. Mm-hmm. Um, so let's talk a little bit about binge eating. Okay. Now, binge eating is uh, characterized by recurrent binge eating episodes during which a person feels a loss of control over his or her eating. But unlike bulimia, binge eating episodes are not followed by purging excessive exercise or fasting. And as a result, a lot of binge eaters will be overweight or obese. Mm -hmm. And one thing I think we should say about binge eating is that while uh, anorexia and bulimia tend to affect more women than men, for binge eating, it's, it's pretty split evenly. Mm-hmm. Both men and women um, suffer equally from uh, from binge eating. And this one has been kind of tricky to classify as a mental disorder because some people will say, well, you know, it, these people just have a lack of willpower. They're just eating too much, you know, and by calling it some kind of mental disorder, then you're just caving to their, you know, their uh, weakness. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's sort of the heart of the problem we're going to get to today is it's like you said, it's so easy to, well, not, let's not say easy, but you can recognize anorexia. It comes with certain symptoms. Mm-hmm. Um, and all the other ones people can almost explain away there. When we were researching this podcast, we would find articles of people who'd be like, I had a really bad relationship with food, but you know, I go to a doctor and it's not anorexia. So they really didn't know what to do with me. And so people are saying, you know, oh, you just need to eat more. You just need to stop eating as much. And it's not considered a medical problem, whereas all these studies that are being done um, and all this revision is attempting to show that these people do need help. It isn't a lack of willpower. Yeah, because the National Institutes of Mental Health points out that, yeah, you have all these eating behaviors, but they are a manifestation usually of other psychiatric disorders such as depression, substance abuse, anxiety disorders, body dysmorphic disorder, when you look in the mirror and you might be emaciated, but you still see yourself as fat. Um, There are all these different things that are going on, which is why it is, A, hard to classify, and B, difficult to treat. And um, I think when you look at the different behaviors that are associated with or that fall under the Ednos umbrella um, you can see how it's such a huge gray area because this will include anything from, or at least formally, uh, binge eating disorders, purging, night eating syndrome, chewing and spitting out food, and even just extremely picky eating. Yeah. I mean, it's impossible to, I mean, in what woman at some point, and even men, but we're going to kind of focus on women since it tends to affect them a little bit more. I mean, at what point or another, it seems like we all have a preoccupation with our weight and mm-hmm. food. At what point does that cross into an eating disorder. And this brings me to one pretty interesting example that popped up recently. 
in Time magazine, uh, the concept of orthorexia, where you become obsessed with only eating healthy foods. And um, to the point where this one woman who was in the article weighed just 68 pounds because she refused to eat anything that wasn't, you know, a raw food or organic. Mm-hmm. And, you know, she would go to the doctor and they would tell her to eat healthfully. But that, in fact, was her hang up. And some experts are, the Time magazine pointed out, are hesitant to classify this idea of orthorexia as any kind of eating disorder. But um, one doctor pointed out that such controlled eating habits, unhealthily controlled eating habits, um, are really just, it's just a step along the way to anorexia. And National Institutes of Mental Health also points out that an eating disorder in general is just marked by extreme. I mean, whenever you have a serious disturbance in eating behavior, such as extreme reduction in food intake or extreme selection of what foods you are going to eat, that is classified as a disorder, Mm -hmm. um, which orthorexia would probably fall under. So let's talk about some other different extremes, because I think that you know, we're not trying to make the case that everyone has an eating disorder, which I think it can sometimes sound like when you want to classify all sorts of things as eating disorders. Sure. But I do think that extremes can manifest themselves in ways you're not aware of. Like, let's take athletes. Yeah, there is um, something that I didn't, I think you and I were both unaware of this until we started um, researching for this podcast. There's a condition called female athlete triad, which is basically over-exercising in combination with extremely limited eating. And I first ran across um, this term when I was reading an article about it in Dance Magazine. Um, it caught my eye because I was a, uh, I took ballet for a while in middle and high school and got really into it. And um, this is something that I definitely encountered among um the other ballerinas um, that I would hang out with were basically like you were, you know, you're, they're so image conscious and you have to be so tiny that you'll restrict what you eat. But in, but if you eat even just like the tiniest amount of something that wasn't, you know, on your dietary meal plan, you will exercise like above and beyond to quote unquote burn it off. Mm-hmm. And a lot of times this will also be accompanied by um, a lack of menstruation and also osteoporosis because you're not taking in enough nutrients for your growing body. And I think that with something like female athlete triad, it can just be masked as, oh, she's just really, really healthy. But no, if you're training four hours a day and only eating like 800 calories, no, that's not But healthy. you know, there are some sports where that seems to be a requirement. Like, mm-hmm. let's take um, sports where you have to make a certain weight. I remember the wrestlers at my school doing extra laps at lunch so they could make their weight class. And I think that that sort of mentality, you know, it can be encouraged to some extent by a coach. But there comes a point where if it takes over your life, even though, you know, the sport is a major part of your life, but if it takes over your eating and your exercise, that's when it becomes an extreme relationship that would qualify as some sort of disorder. Mm-hmm. Now, with something like the female athlete triad, one of those legs of the triad is amenorrhea. You stop having a period usually because your your body weight falls so low. But if that doesn't happen, let's go back to these people who have disordered relationships with food but don't necessarily get so skinny that you notice. I think that's, again, like something to hit home that disordered eating 
does not necessarily result in a really skinny person. Right, because just with the range from anorexia to bulimia to binge eating, you have something that's marked by, you know, the at one extreme you have anorexics who are severely underweight, bulimics who may or may not be at a normal weight, and then binge eaters who are at, uh, you know, who are obese or overweight. So just weight alone is not going to be the determining factor of whether or not you have an eating disorder. But regardless of what way a disordered eating pattern manifests itself, be it anorexia or binge eating, is there anything that all these people have in common? Because that's something that doctors are going to need to know about so that they can develop a treatment plan. Right. I think until recently, that's been a really complicated question to answer uh, because, you know, you do, it, it is often accompanied by um, certain forms of anxiety disorders or depression or what have you. But researchers have also in the past few years uh, found certain genetic traits that are shared among people with eating disorders. So they're starting to think that maybe, maybe this is something that is passed along in your DNA. Right. Specifically, it seems like they've done a lot of work with anorexia, but that's not to say that just, you know, having a family history of it is enough to spur your own bout with it. It seems to be kind of a perfect storm of factors. You know, maybe someone says the wrong thing at the wrong time in the lunchtime cafeteria, or, you know, you get the wrong look at yourself in your jeans, or you do have something going on like a sport. You have, you know, perfectionist tendencies. You have maybe the gene for it. It all seems to come together in just the wrong, wrong way. Yeah. And because there are so many factors that can contribute to an eating disorder in all of its different manifestations, it is very difficult and very costly in severe cases to treat. I mean, some people don't need treatment. About, uh, I think with anorexia specifically, about a third of the people will kind of just recover on their own after an episode. One third will be fine after a round of treatment. And a third are always going to have issues with it. Mm -hmm. It's not ever going to go away. But, you know, one of the reasons why this update of the DSM is so important is because right now it's really hard to get uh, EDNOS, the otherwise not specified disorders, covered by health insurance. Mm-hmm. And if you do need to go to some sort of clinic, that can cost, you know, maybe $1,000 a day, and that won't be covered by insurance. And it seems that because each disordered eating relationship can be so highly individual, that's A, why they're hard to treat, but B, also why the DSM, you know, it's hard to put in conditions that just affect, you know, one person. Mm-hmm. But the DSM, the upcoming DSM classification is very significant, especially for people who might be struggling with binge eating, because once you get a disorder actually listed in there, it basically validates it as a problem, opening up the door for way more research funding opportunities and the potential for wider insurance coverage for treatments. Right. So this is a good thing, I mm-hmm. think. So right now, the treatments for anorexia and bulimia are kind of similar. A lot of times it will involve some kind of cognitive behavioral behavioral therapy, possibly some group therapy, although there have been studies um, that have indicated that antidepressants, because, you know, as I've mentioned a couple times now, um, there are usually some um, anxiety issues that are going on as well, and so they will put people on, with eating disorders on antidepressants. But they are finding that that might not be very effective for anorexics in particular. It might have a little bit more of an effect for um, bulimics. But in general, it's all about just 
kind of retraining these eating behaviors. Mm -hmm. For instance, there was a very poignant essay in the New York Times Magazine about this woman's journey to treat her very anorexic, severely anorexic daughter who ended up in the hospital because of, I think, electrolyte imbalance and dehydration. And, uh, you know, just the very slow journey to teaching her that it would be, that it's okay to eat, that Mm -hmm. she doesn't have to be scared of food. Um, and similarly with, uh, bulimics, you know, kind of pulling the, that hidden binging behavior out into the open and teaching them how to, you know, eat normally and not having to, to purge and continue this shame cycle. Mm -hmm. And because it is such a, a mental thing, I think it can be very hard to, um, recognize it happening to someone you know and love. So we read one statistic that 50% of Americans know someone with uh, disordered eating habits. If your friend isn't eating in the cafeteria, we'll, we'll give you a little bit of advice about what to do. But again, this is one where we'd love to hear um, what people out there have done when they had friends who were exercising too much, eating too much, not eating enough, had some of those relationships marked by extremes. Now, um, the Nemours Foundation, which we've cited before, is great, kidshealth.org, say that this was in relation to the female athlete triad thing. And basically, if you've got this friend, you it's it's almost very similar to the advice we offered about dating violence, Kristen. Mm-hmm. Uh, you basically just have to make your concerns known and tell them, you know, I'm worried about you. I don't think this is good for you. And then you might need to kind of step away a little bit just to give them time to figure out how they're going to deal with it. If, if maybe things don't get any better, it's good to let a coach or a teacher or parents know about your concerns because... You know, these people are pretty good at hiding the behaviors. It's marked by shame. They'll do all these behaviors underground. So just, I think, being um, open to having your friend talk about it with you is a really good first step. Mm-hmm. But I don't think that anyone out there should be able to feel like they have to take it on themselves to force a friend to eat or to yeah. stop a friend from exercising. Right. Because I think in those kind of situations, kind of like, again, going back to the dating violence episode, I think... That um, because there is there's so much hidden behavior associated with it and there is a lot of um, shame associated with it, whether or not it's, you know, the anorexic looking in the mirror and still seeing, you know, fat thighs or love handles or the bulimic purging. um, I think that if you go in there and try to kind of shake it out of them, if you will, it's only going to drive those behaviors into even more private corners. But, I mean, there are different schools of thought on that. The um, the New York Times Magazine article that Kristen cited was an instance of a mother taking the daughter and trying to shake it out of her. So it's a hard thing for us to advise on. I mean, no two cases, like I think we've said, are going to be the same. Everyone's right. going to have their own relationship with this. And clinically speaking, these are classified as mental disorders, so it's not like you can just snap someone mm-hmm. out of it. Mm-hmm. I think that it's also important for us to realize that um, – you know, it's not just about food. It's about what's going on in the brain. Right. So it'll be worth keeping an eye on what happens with the DSM-5, what actually ends up in the 2013 edition. But until we get that, let's hear from you guys. Um, any relationships you've had where this has been a problem for you or someone you love and things you did that worked, didn't work? You know, what can people do if they've got a friend in this situation, a daughter in this situation? And, of course, this does happen to guys as well, so a daughter or a son with this problem. Yeah, let us know. Um, our email is momstuff at howstuffworks.com, and let's go ahead and share a little bit of other letters that we have gotten in recently. 
I've got one here from Mac, and it's in response to, Do children need a mother and a father? And Mac was brought up by two lesbian mothers, and he said, I thought I'd give you my two cents. Um, I personally, growing up, never felt any sort of disadvantage for not having a father, other than having a much greater knowledge of the works of Melissa Etheridge and the Indigo Girls than any other guy my age, uh, but I seem to have turned out pretty normal. I think there's a lot of truth to gay and lesbian couples that have children being usually more prepared for them in the first place. Speaking from a biological standpoint, it's pretty hard for gay and lesbian couples to have a child by accident or before they are ready. You have to have your life pretty together to be able to deal with the hassle and paperwork and it often, that it often takes for an alternative couple to have a child. Can you imagine how different things would be if straight children had to jump through as many hoops to have a child? Also... Uh, if you're of the notion that it takes a village to raise a child, look no closer than a lesbian social circle for support. Me being a child of lesbians, I was somewhat of a rarity back in the day. Needless to say, I had a whole army of women who had a vested interest in my well-being. My lovely feminist girlfriend seems to think that being raised by two smart, powerful women kept me from growing up to be some sort of stereotypical womanizer, though I'd like to think that that wouldn't have happened anyway. So, thank you, Mac, for sharing. All right, and I'll read one from David on the same podcast topic. He writes, I listened to your podcast about two gender households and waited patiently for you to describe my household. Alas, it never came. My wife and I are married and have three boys. We both work, but you kept referring to households with hetero married couples as those where dad works and mom stays home. What about both parents working or where mom works and dad stays home? All this talk about resources seemed to be a not-so-thinly-veiled word for money. If the parents have money enough to provide X, Y, and Z, then the children turn out well. Poppycock and Balderdash. I'm a firm believer that children need at least one male and female influence in their lives. When my boys sit in the tub and talk about pooting, my wife doesn't understand why that's so funny and why the four of us are cracking up. I'm not saying it can't work and that any other arrangement is bad, but at least one male and one female actively involved in raising a child is best. And I think that we should point out that, yes, we did refer to resources a lot, but I will say that resources can refer, yes, to money, but also to emotional investment as well. Right. I don't think that we were just trying to refer to money just as a clarification, but he, he makes a great point as well. All right. So thanks folks for writing in and send us more mail, mom stuff at howstuffworks.com. And also we would love for you to check out our blog during the week. It's called how to stuff. And of course you can always fill your mind with knowledge at howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. Want more HowStuffWorks? Check out our blogs on the HowStuffWorks.com homepage. Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you?